Good morning, Central Assembly. Trust you're in the middle of a meaningful uh, experience memorializing our fallen um, men and women and that uh, that will come to a, a real meaningful culmination for you tomorrow on the actual day. Today we're going to be continuing our series, summer special summer series, Case for Truth, and we're going to be looking at uh, the question, addressing this question, do recent discoveries support the Bible? Uh, this is one of my favorite areas. I don't get to do this very often, so I apologize ahead of time for the download. Here's how you survive it. The main point in all of the material that we will be presented this morning, both in written form and in visuals, is uh, that you come away with an understanding that we are uh, in the middle of a virtual tsunami of material coming out of the ground that has direct bearing on the Bible. And in every instance, we are receiving confirmation after confirmation, greater and greater clarity that enable us to understand that our faith is based on the solid rock of reality, not speculation, not personal opinion, but you're going to see it literally written in stone, reality after reality, example after example. So please understand, you don't have to take notes. You don't have to memorize every image you see. You don't have to memorize every word that I say because even though I'm a professor, there will not be a test at the end of our time together this morning. So let your hair down, enjoy it. Move, walk away from this with the, the big picture message that God's word is truth verified over and over and over again. Expect more. Last season was a downtime because of COVID, so there wasn't a digging season, but we've, you're gonna see stuff just this morning that takes us all the way up to the 2019 digging season, and I expect more from the current digging season. So about three years ago, I checked my records. We shared on a subject much like this, and so the first part of what we're gonna do today is review unless you weren't here, and then you're gonna get the opportunity to see then for the first time some of the uh, kind of highlights of what we did. Yes, it was three years ago. I blinked, you know? I was thinking six months, maybe a year, three years ago. So, we looked at the, we first we looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls. More than 900 manuscripts that came out of the ground that take our text of the Bible back 12, in some instances, 1,300 years before our previous, what was previously our earliest handwritten texts of Scripture. And guess what? We hear from one of the, most, one of the foremost scholars of the Hebrew Bible and of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Geza Vermesh. We hear that the text was virtually unchanged for more than a millennium even though it was being transmitted in writing by scribes, not by movable printing press. That's an amazing testament, testimony to the unchanging nature of God's Word. Let's just take that same text of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament and move it back another 300 plus years in time, back to the days of Hezekiah and Isaiah, back to the days prior to the Babylonian exile. And my uh, archaeology professor, 
when I lived in Israel, Dr. Gabriel Barcai, digging on the slope of the Hinnom Valley, what Jesus called Gehenna, uh, found these two small silver scrolls. And when unrolled, word for word, literally, guys, letter for letter, 2,700 years old, what we hear is the, high, the, the words of the, of the priestly blessing. And it is the same as what is printed in Hebrew Bibles today. This text, 2,700 years old. Word for word, letter for letter. And so may the Lord bless you. And may he keep, or in Hebrew, guard, watch over and protect you. Those words are as real today as they were back 2,700 years ago and the discovery of these two silver scrolls. We also hear at, at sometimes bedtime stories or in Sunday school, the story of Samson. Little boys and little girls, don't you want to become strong for God like Samson? Well, Samson was placed after he'd been captured by the Philistines in between two large pillars that we're told held up the entire superstructure of this huge Philistine temple. And the reality is that in the 1940s, Benjamin Mazar discovered one of these Philistine temples near Tel Aviv, and you see the two major, really gigantic bases on which large pillars upheld the entire superstructure. But only recently, a friend of mine, Dr. Aaron Meyer, digging at Biblical Gath, found a similar structure, almost exactly the same floor plan, with the bases of two gigantic pillars that held up the entire Philistine temple. When the Bible speaks, the Bible can be trusted, even when it's talking about something as mundane as architecture. We, speaking of Goliath, the, uh, Gath, there was this famous giant. You read about him, David slew Goliath, etc. Well, again, a bedtime story, right? A, a, a fable, a, a legend at, at best. And, and yet, Dr. R.N. Meyer, digging at biblical Gath, found this piece of pottery, a, part of a broken cereal bowl, we might call it. And there was an inscription on that cereal bowl. You can see the letters there. It's not in Hebrew, because Goliath wasn't Jewish or Israelite. It's not in Hebrew. It's, it's in an Indo-Aryan language, because the Philistines were not Semitic. They were Indo-Aryan. They come from the land, uh, the area of mainland Greece. Got there about the same time that Joshua and the Israelites came in from the other direction. And when this inscription was analyzed, lo and behold, it was the name Goliath. There's only one Goliath in the Bible. There's only one Goliath in all of ancient literature outside the Bible. So was it the Goliath that we know of from the book of 1 Samuel? Well, I, I can't say 100%, but it's really suggestive. At least there were Philistines in Gath named Goliath. We can go that far. Amazing, yes? Yeah. After 3,000 years, amazing? Absolutely. We have another text that we had, we discussed last time, three years ago, when we were doing this. It's called the Tel Dan or the Beit David or the House of David inscription. You know, people from the uh, middle to the far left of biblical scholarship had concluded that King David was a mythical figure. He was a King Arthur figure. 
um, sort of a make-believe, uh, ideally, if we had a great king, he would kind of look like this. But a real, historical, legitimate, you know, flesh and bones, bones no doubt about it, King David, nah, too far-fetched. And yet, in 1993, 1994, the digging seasons of those two years, three pieces of a victory monument, not written by an Israelite, not written in Hebrew, but written in Aramaic by an Aramean king from Damascus. He invaded the country and he took captives and he defeated armies and he sets up this inscription and written, the fifth line from the bottom is House of David. I killed Joram, son of Ahab, and Ahaziah, uh, uh, son of Joram, the king of the house of David, or dynasty of David, written in stone. David was not made up. He's not make-believe. Not an action hero. He's not a Superman or, for sure, Wonder Woman. What I did with that? David founded a dynasty, king of Israel, and now we have it written in stone. We talked about also the last time I was doing this in, in this context. Uh, in ancient times, kings and officials of high order would issue decrees and pronouncements and write official letters and documents and that sort of thing. This is sort of a mock-up, a make-believe of that. Uh, you have a scroll rolled up and then bound together with twine, but then kind of like we sick the, um, lick the back of an envelope in order to seal it shut and only to be opened by the person that we're addressing it to, there is a seal impression made of, uh, of damp clay that would then bear the name of the sender and only the person to whom it was sent was supposed to be able to break this seal and open the document. Well, in uh, 2017, the cover of Biblical Archaeology Review, one of these uh, seals that, that sealed the document closed was found in uh, the part of Jerusalem that goes back to the days of King David and his descendants. And here's a close-up of the same thing. And there you'll see that there's an inscription here, writing. And then there are two Egyptian symbols, the unk and the winged sun disk. And as this is analyzed, we realize that the Hebrew is saying, belonging to Hezekiah, who is the son of Ahaz, He's the king of Judah. Look at all the stuff that that validates, that verifies. We hear about in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and in the book of Isaiah, the great king Hezekiah. And even Isaiah, a best friend, his court prophet, had to rebuke Hezekiah for his close connections with the empire to the south, Egypt. Very interesting. Now, to make it even more interesting. And I think that we discussed this last time as well. In the digging season of 2018, another one of these seal impressions, the technical term is bula, B-U-L-L-A, another seal impression was found only 10 feet from the place where the Hezekiah bula was found. This one, again, in Hebrew, reads, belonging to Isaiah the prophet. And so in the, in the same 
books of 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and in the prophecy of Isaiah. We read about this close connection between King Hezekiah and his court prophet Isaiah, who wrote the book of Isaiah. And it's so interesting that as close as they were in life, they have now been joined together yet again in this display of the Hezekiah Bula and the Isaiah the prophet Bula on permanent display. How ironic, how appropriate, right? So make believe, uh, pretend, um, once upon a time, myth and legend. It's not looking like that, is it? We press on. This is new material, not presented three years ago, even for those who may remember. Uh, we're at the location of, uh, of Tel Shiloh, biblical Shiloh. And on the northern end of this really large excavation, you can see it going all the way out and off the picture, at the northern end, there is a rectangular structure outlined by outcroppings of bedrock, the dimensions of which, when measured down to the, down to the cubit, from the longest finger to the elbow, right down to the very cubit, give us the exact measurements of the tabernacle that had been built by Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. You'll find descriptions of it in, in, in the book of, of Exodus in chapter 25 and chapter 40, right down to the very, uh, the very, the very cubit in size. But, but more than that, um, this is a, kind of a fun video, just kind of put it in, uh, in motion. Uh, here are the 12 uh, tr flags for the 12 tribes of Israel. But around this, ho this holy site, excavations revealed uh, jars that were full of grain dedicated to the sanctuary, to the tabernacle, for use in what are called meal or cereal offerings, depending on your translation. Also, jars that contain the residue of holy wine that had been dedicated for use in pour, or sometimes we call them drink offerings, onto uh, the sacrificial altar. Um, amazing material coming out of the ground at Tel Shiloh. By the way, director of the archeological excavation, AG scholar. They, I love that, okay? Maybe not as ironic, but still pretty neat. Dr. Scott Stripling. Um, in this excavation also uh, was revealed as these, this, these outcroppings of bedrock that marked the northern and southern boundary of the tabernacle. Uh, post holes chiseled into the solid bedrock with, uh, by human hands. And forming a line like this, there's yours truly pointing one of them out, um, evidently were for the posts that held up the fence that ran around the tabernacle. It sat there for 367 years. You hear about people like Eli, the high priest, and his wicked sons. You hear about the beginnings of the ministry of the prophet Samuel, who succeeded him and became the high priest of all of Israel. All of this stuff is happening here at Shiloh. Amazing. After approximately 3,200 years that we have this kind of evidence coming out of gr the ground, but it gets even better. In the most recent, recent digging season, not 2020 because that was scratched due to COVID, but the last one, 2019, we had three of these pieces of rock 
stone come out of the excavation that are very clearly to trained eyes horns on the altar from the tabernacle that was at Shiloh dismantled only after the building of the temple in Jerusalem by Solomon when he consolidated centralized worship there this altar no longer needed was dismantled and three of these four horns of the altar were found in 2019 in secondary use use of private homes and walls and that kind of thing but very obviously like grabbing onto the horns of the altar we used to say back in old Pentecost now you're literally seeing one from the days of Joshua and the judges and the prophet Samuel incredible that you would even that you'd even let yourself think that this may be possible and yet we see it right in front of us in uh, uh, in the images on the screen let's jump to New Testament look at some stuff um, unbelievable it's not just unique to the Old Testament remember that everything in the Gospels and much of the book of Acts are happening it, these things are happening in the land of Israel so let's track Jesus movement from Nazareth which is on this big ridge Nazareth down the ridge and uh, through lower Galilee till this cut right here it looks it's it's a there's a little yellow dot and in what looks like a shadow that's a deep cut erosion cut through a ridge that then lets you pass through that mountain and get out onto a flat plain that's called the plain of Gennesaret this is the travel route that Isaiah described in Isaiah chapter 9 he will make glorious the way of the sea it's the name of a road actually and this is that deep erosion cut in that uh, in that ridge it allows you to move from lower Galilee right out onto the plain of Gennesaret where Jesus once preached a sermon from a boat in Luke chapter 5 on the way to Capernaum which is up here on the North Shore you see the Golan Heights on the other side of the Sea of Galilee is that beautiful that to me this is glorious he will make glorious the way of the sea um, on that western shore now we're out on the plain of Gennesaret and where the road curves right here there was um, an attempt made to build a resort a, a retreat uh, center and when the when the dirt was being cleared they hit work, worked stone archaeologists were then brought in and this first century synagogue was discovered my friend Marvin there has his foot on the threshold of the main entrance this main entrance would have been used according to Matthew and Mark I just used the Mark version he Jesus went to their synagogues throughout all of Galilee and Magdala is very firmly in Galilee in fact it's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee See, you would have passed the test anyway um, preaching and casting out demons what does this text mean it means that as one of the synagogues of Galilee and this text is saying that Jesus went to all of them yeah you did the math you guys are good Jesus preached in that synagogue in the same way that he would have preached that he preached in Luke chapter 4 in his own hometown synagogue of Nazareth and while this synagogue first century synagogue dated by coins found in between the cracks and the rock this first century synagogue uh, uh, revealed a, a number of kind of pretty unique things things I haven't seen yet 
Not only, for example, not only are there seats around the edges, they didn't do pews like we do. That's Byzantine and, and later where we're stacking people on top of, top of people. It's weird that not only airlines do that, but we do that in churches. But these guys sat around the edges of the room. This synagogue, though, also has a row of seats inside the synagogue, in the middle. One here and another one here. And then there was this stone that was revealed. So let's talk about those for just a second. Those seats that are closest to the location where the word of God was read and then expounded, all right? Jesus says this in Matthew 23. Those religious leaders that are hypocrites love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats. We're talking the box seats, guys. You know, the, place up in the places up in the booth where the big money sits. They love the places, the chief seats in the synagogues. This is evidently what Jesus is talking about. Now to that un unique stone in the very middle. It's not the indigenous rock. It's, it's white limestone. All the, everything else around is basalt, uh, volcanic rock. So this was probably imported from the area around Jerusalem where you have lots of white limestone. And when you take a really close look at this, you see symbols all over this piece of rock that represent or that connect with realities in the temple. For example, the columns in the temple, the light that the temple represents, the two silver flagons where those pour offerings or drink offerings were poured out onto the altar, the menorah, the uh, rosette that represent, represents the glory of God a la Ezekiel and his wheels of the chariot. This is also pointed in the direction of Jerusalem. So that when you're reading, you are reading as on an altar, you've got horns on the four corners, like the horns of an altar. You are literally presenting to God a sacrifice by reading his word and studying it in context. How beautiful is that? Now, if Jesus visited the synagogue, and he did, and because he visited all synagogues in Galilee, preaching the good news and casting out demons. And, and, and if Jesus went to that synagogue, then he most assuredly preached like he did in Luke chapter 4 when he was at his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. And if he preached, then before he preached, he read from God's word. Possibly even that same passage, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, and he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Jesus would have stood at this, what was, you see the, the feet down here, probably had columns made of stone, that legs that this set on. This was one of the pulpits that Jesus would have preached from. 2009, this was discovered, barely a decade ago, and we have Jesus' pulpit. How neat is that? Let's go, let's move from Galilee to Jerusalem. Uh, in uh, the city of Jerusalem, if you're, look, if you're standing on the Mount of Olives and you're looking across the Kidron Valley, then the first thing that you see is the Temple Mount and then all of Jerusalem that is spreading out behind it, right? So, John chapter 9, Jesus is visiting this temple and he runs across a man who was born blind. You remember the story in John chapter 9, right? Jesus said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, Shiloach in Hebrew, which is translated sent. 
So he went away and washed and he came back seeing. Well, this is just a metaphor, right? Siloam, this idea of scent, well, that's just kind of a theological theme that the Gospel of John develops. Like, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so do I send you. So there's a lot of sentness going on in the Gospel of John, so this is really just a literary device. It's, it's just a metaphor. No one's ever found the pool of Siloam, and then all of a sudden, if you just kind of take that model of Jerusalem and we were up on this parapet and then sort of just kind of migrate around to the south, now we're looking up what was the city of David in David's day, six acres. Then there was a staircase that was built right along this drainage system by Pontius Pilate. We know that because now it's been discovered and dated by coins found in the rocks. Down at the bottom of the city of David, there was a reservoir, a pool. It was referred to by the Gospel of John, chapter 9, right? And yet all we have is some Byzantine little tiny uh, pool that's about 70, 80 yards away from what was supposed to be the pool of Siloam. And here's the close-up of that. Temple Mount, city of David, and now pool of Siloam. Any evidence for that? In 2004, there was a leak in a pipe. This is the way it often happens. It's discovery by accident rather than by intent. And when the excavating equipment was moving the dirt and rocks to get to the pipe that was broken, the excavating equipment hit rock that was then discovered to be worked rock. Not natural rock, but it had been hewn. It had been laid in place by human hands. and so. A friend of mine, Dr. Ailey Shukron, archaeologist, preeminent archaeologist of Jerusalem, was, happened to be on call that day. He was brought in. He got his trowel out, began to check the stone. Indeed, it was ancient stone worked by human hands. So an emergency excavation began, and I'm going to do a, just a little time-lapse uh, photography on that. You can see steps that are being discovered, and then the bottom, the very base of the, the pool where the water would, uh, would have been held. Uh, now more has been uncovered, and you can actually see it cornering and going over into this other property that can't be excavated because it's not owned by the City of David Foundation yet. Uh, but you've got steps going down, the, the floor of the pool, and then the corner that tells us that it went this way. And then, as it looks now, um, a beautiful and gigantic reservoir, the Pool of Siloam. Not only was the Pool of Siloam discovered in 2004, but they began to excavate a connect way to the temple, a series of steps that went all the way the full length of the city of David and you can actually walk on these today. Dated to the time of Pontius Pilate, these are the very steps that the blind man walked down. The reason Jesus didn't send anybody with him or send him with a road map was uh, there are no turns and there are no curves. It goes straight downhill directly from the temple to the pool of Siloam. Beautiful when, it, when a plan comes together, isn't it? Does faith ever become sight? like Horatio Spafford wrote in It Is Well With My Soul? Is seeing indeed believing? Does a picture paint a thousand words? Does faith arise when you see that indeed when the New Testament, the book of Acts, talks about 
that Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples with many convincing proofs. Does faith arise when we actually see that? If it's not, then keep listening. (laughs) I want to look at this area of Jerusalem and the Pool of Siloam. It's right, the city of David is here, this little finger of land, six acres. Then a 36-acre temple mount right here, and then the old wall of Jerusalem going all the way around. We're actually on the Mount of Olives, the southern end of the Mount of Olives. This is the Kidron Valley here. This is the Hinnom Valley here, or Gehenna. And the Pool of Siloam is in this deep depression. This video literally comes from a year before the Pool of Siloam was discovered by Ailey Shukron and the excavators. Mount of Olives here, Kidron Valley, City of David, Temple Mount, Pool of Siloam. Not a myth, not a legend, not a bedtime story, not once upon a time in a land far, far away and they all lived happily ever after. Literal, geographical, archaeological, verified reality. Gotta love it when that comes together. This is my friend Ailey Shukone. Isn't he a good-looking young man? He's sitting on those very steps that were discovered from the days of Pontius Pilate's rule of 10 years in Judea. And um, in addition to the things already discovered, the steps, the Pool of Siloam, Ailey also found in, in the cracks of the rock a little golden bell it's the size that you see there. That's, those are his, those are Ailey's fingers holding a little golden bell. We know it's a bell because if you move it back and forth, it has a clapper inside. It makes a little tinkling sound. There's a little loop at the very top that a small thread could be passed through in order to sew it to, yes, the hem of the garment of the high priest, worn only one day a year, the Day of Atonement, when he would enter into the Holy of Holies. This is the one piece of evidence that we have that we can say we know for sure that that golden bell had made its way at least once or twice into the very Holy of Holies, the most sacred precinct of the temple. We read about it in Exodus 28. A golden bell, bells of gold, all around the hem of the high priest's robe. And so, when Aaron goes in, etc., its tinkling may be heard as he enters and leaves the holy place from before the very dwelling Shekinah presence of the Lord. Who, what are the chances of something like that surviving thousands of years and now literally being in our possession what are the chances what are the chances that there would ever be this bible passage confirmed by archaeological reality solid hardcore visible tangible evidence of the bible's reality ailey's not finished ailey also found in a storm drain uh, that runs parallel with that staircase He also found a little token. The Hebrew on it reads, pure to Yah, yod Hey, the short abbreviated version of Yahweh or Yahveh. Pure to God, 
It's evidently a part of the purification system that was required for Jews to be able to enter into the holy place, into that part of the, the dwelling presence of God. So as Jesus, Joseph, and Mary had to wait until the days of their purification were completed, when they un underwent a ritual immersion bath, what we would call a baptism, they would be given a token like that to show to the person guarding that gate to allow them entry into closer into the very presence of God. Paul as well, at the end of, of his uh, active ministry, returns to Jerusalem and was pure, being purified and then entered the temple. He would have had one of these tokens demonstrating that he was a Jew and in a state of ritual purity and could enter into the sacred precincts of the temple. But Ailey's still not finished. Ailey was excavating right up against the western wall and down at the very base of the wall, at the very foundation, he found the only tool that's ever been discovered that was used in the construction of the temple that Jesus and the apostles, Paul, Josephus, and others knew. The only, the only tool ever discovered that was used in the building of that building, a nine-inch iron chisel used to uh, work stone into the size and shape needed for, its, for use in the temple building. We move on to uh, the tomb of, of, of Annas, the high priest. The first man that Jesus was taken to, Jewish authority, after his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Annas was the high priest earlier. It had been taken from him and given to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. You may remember him. Annas is mentioned in Luke, John, and the book of Acts. And Lean Rittmeyer identified this as the tomb of Annas based on, first of all, the contents of the tomb. Very elaborate, all kinds of uh, interesting construction inside the tomb, including a rosette ceiling with 32 petals. The only other two were found, one in a, 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 a priestly tomb and another uh, in the entrance, the southern entrance going into the Temple Mount. Um, also a text from Josephus. Rittmeyer noticed that moving up from the spring of Ain Rogel, very close to the uh, Pool of Siloam, uh, the, there was the Roman siege wall in A.D. 70 when the Romans encircled Jerusalem, eventually destroying it. The first thing Romans would do was erect a siege wall. And he says that the siege wall, wall ran from Ain Rogel all the way up against the monument of Ananus or Annas, the high priest, and was able to identify it on the basis of geographical location, references to things around it, and the tomb itself. We have the tomb of the first of the high priests that Jesus was taken to in the last chapters of our Gospels. We also have the tomb of his son-in-law, Caiaphas, or as Josephus calls him, Joseph Caiaphas is his full name. And we have his very casket, the bone box that contained Caiaphas's bone. The bones themselves were found and are datable, first century stuff. So this stone bone box or ossuary, very ornately decorated on the front side to impress, because that's the side that people would be facing when they first saw it. Beautifully and professionally done. But I want you to notice this. There is an inscription on the side. And when you turn it around, right here, 
it says, Yosef bar Kepha, Joseph, the son of Caiaphas. This is the second person that Jesus was taken to during his passion. And we're not finished yet because we have the third person. This is three out of three, guys. Annas, Caiaphas, and you may be able to make out the inscription here in Latin. This is a Tiberium. It's a worship center for the worship of Tiberius Caesar as being divine. And it was dedicated by Pontius Pilatus. You know this name from our Gospels. Pontius Pilate. You get 100 on the test. Maybe even extra credit. Here's an artist reconstruction of that. And it says, a temple to Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, has dedicated. Confirmation of everything that we read about Pontius Pilate in the Gospels. Luke 3, the passion narratives at the end of the Gospels. This is the Pontius Pilate of history. Not a mythical figure, a figure whose very name is written in stone. One more on Pontius Pilate. This, was, uh, this ring was decoded in 2018. And it has, and we only know of one Pilate, okay, from Judea in the first century. And it says, if you remember your math, that's the letter Pi. It's the letter P. P-I-L-O-T-A-S. Pilotas. This is Pilate in Greek. Fascinating. We've got two now. On the evidence of two archaeological witnesses, this guy Pontius Pilate. And it was found in a, an administrative center about nine miles southeast of Jerusalem near this gigantic, what looks like a crater. It's actually a mountain that has been put on top of another mountain and then a big um, combination fortress and palace was built by Herod the Great, the one who killed the babies in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2. And this is the administrative center down at the bottom. You see Roman columns lining the area. Uh, the final resting place, the mausoleum of Herod the Great, was found in this area right here in 2004 by uh, Dr. Ehud Netzer shortly before his, his own death. Uh, the case for truth. We've looked at Old Testament stuff. We've looked at New Testament stuff. I've bothered you with all kinds of evidence, but I have a challenge I've got a couple of challenges, in fact. For those who've not made a decision to follow Jesus because you've been inundated with the message from our educational system or from Hollyweird or from your friends or whatever that, well, the Bible is just a, uh, full of a, a bunch of contradictions. The Bible is full of errors. The Bible is a book that is great as far as myth and legend go, but there's not any real reality that's to be associated with it. Look, all we've done is hit the high points. There's tons of other stuff that we haven't had the time to cover, and there's more to come. We will have a post-COVID digging season. It's in the process of ramping up right now. Count on more. Expect more of this deluge, this tsunami in these last days from a God who's responding to a culture that says, but we need proof. Ladies and gentlemen, we've seen a whole Sunday ser sermon full of nothing but proof. The proof is in the seeing. Seeing is believing. A 
picture paints a thousand words. I challenge those of you who have yet to make a commitment to follow this God of the Bible, this Jesus of Nazareth, and to accept God's Word as indeed being verified, confirmed. I'd encourage you to make that next step of faith and put feet behind what you're seeing with your eyes and trust Him and follow him and serve and obey him and I'd also encourage another group of people those of you um, who have struggled through this last year and a half and you've had disappointments and you've had busyness that's been caused by all the extra stuff that had to be done because of the virus because of the shutdown to meet the needs of your family maybe you've lost loved ones maybe you have lost people who are close to you dear friends Maybe you've lost a job or you've lost your housing or whatever. Times have been tough. Let me encourage you to gird up the loins of your mind, as the Scripture says, and trust Him and press on to, to know Him through His Word, even in a deeper, greater way. Can I challenge you to do that? Let's pray quickly.